Good afternoon. You're listening to KTOO. I'm Yvonne Kremery. Kuhante means orphan in Tlingit, and it's now the title of a children's book written entirely in the language. It includes no English translations, and it's the first of its kind in decades. The book will launch on Friday at 5 p.m. with a reading at Juno's Elizabeth Paratrovich Hall. University of Alaska Southeast language professor Hune Lance Twitchell collaborated with master Tlingit speakers to write the book. He says the lack of English translation serves two purposes. Very few people can speak our language, so it's, it's one of many different tools to help people learn, but to also to privilege our language and to elevate it to this place to say our literature can stand on its own. Twitchell will read the story aloud at the launch, and the book's illustrators will sign copies for attendees. Little ones and parents are encouraged to wear regalia. Kahanta tells the story of a young orphaned girl named Sahan who is taken in by a powerful family and learns about the value of respect. In 2016, Twitchell began writing down this and eight other stories with master Tlingit speakers Kahwan Ish George Davis and Shakshani Marge Dudson. Both have since died. Twitchell says he wants the final product to honor their legacies. He anticipates that the lack of an English translation of Kahanta could bring up complicated feelings for some readers. And some of those are going to be based in concepts of racial superiority and linguistic superiority, but others are going to be nested in just longing for being able to speak. He hopes that for those who feel left out, the book could inspire them to start learning Klingit. We have become dependent on the English language, we being the entire region, everybody who lives on Tlingit Ani. And so, he says, the goal is to give everyone on Tlingit land a free copy of Kohante. For now, Tlingit and Haida and Goldbelts are giving free copies to all tribal citizens who sign up. The eight other Tlingit-only children's stories are still being made. In Juno and on Tlingit Ani, I'm Yvonne Crumery. Caribou in the Western Arctic are struggling and a man-made obstacle in their migration path might be adding to their troubles. As KOTZ's Desiree Hagen reports, a retired biologist who studied the herd for over three decades says a mining road in the northwest Arctic hampers the herd's migration, in some cases by over two months. The DeLong Mountain Transportation System is an industrial haul road which connects the Red Dog Mine to a port on the Chukchi Sea. Or trucks travel southwest along the 52-mile gravel road year-round, transporting lead and zinc concentrates to the port site. The powdered ore is then shipped by barge to international markets in the summer when the ice has receded. The Western Arctic caribou herd, once the largest caribou herd in the world, passes through the road area. Jim Dow is a retired wildlife biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He says the Red Dog Road is delaying the herd's fall migration. He gave presentations about his findings in several Northwest Arctic communities earlier this month. I wanted people to know that this is really serious. This could be a big deal. Dow studied the herd migration using aerial observation from bush planes and using radio telemetry. Radio telemetry transmits radio waves from collared caribou to help pinpoint the animal's location. Dow had traveled to the area around Red Dog Road during the fall season, 
where he'd seen physical evidence of the herd migration. He says it was written in the snow. Caribou were getting funneled into large curves in the road before they were able to cross. But Dow wanted more proof, so he used the previous year's data to make a moving map, which plotted out the movement of each collared caribou. Dow says the data shocked him. They were delayed. Some of the caribou were delayed up to two months. Some of them were only delayed a few days, but the average delay was a bit over a month. It was 33 days. He says that year, 21 of the collared caribou came within 30 miles of the Red Dog Road. All but three struggled to cross the road. Uh, and it wasn't very subtle. It looked to me like they had clearly reacted to the road. And caribou that were far from the Red Dog Road, they had no delay at all. They just got right down to their winter range. Dow says that's a big deal because those 18 collared caribou that struggled to cross the road, each of them were moving with the herd. So they represented about 80,000 animals. So we're not talking about hundreds of caribou or dozens. We're talking about tens of thousands of caribou. Looking at their track lines, some of those caribou had to have walked two or three hundred miles by the time they zigged and zagged and tried and failed and tried and failed and finally got across the road. Dow says once the delayed caribou are able to cross the road, they then turn on the speed, making a beeline for their wintering grounds. He says although his initial data on the road's impacts were from 2012, it's not an outlier. It wasn't the only year where they had problems. After I looked at the 2011-12 data, I did similar maps for every year back to 1994. And... Um, I saw similar patterns. Dow has a theory as to how the road affects the herd migration. He believes in years where there were delays, something on the road might have spooked the caribou at the front of the herd. That could be human activity, traffic, or hunters along the road. And I heard elders speak, and they said over and over, don't hunt the leaders when they start coming by in the fall. Let the leaders pass, let them establish trails, and then you can hunt, and they won't turn back. So that's not data-based, but that's based on thousands of years of, you know, close observation and use. Dow says the delayed migration could affect hunters, too. When the caribou hustle to their wintering grounds, they're less accessible to hunters. And while Dow says he's not for or against the project, the effects of the Red Dog Road also have implications for the proposed Ambler Road. That road, if completed, would be four times the size of Red Dog Road. It's also in the herd's range. Recent permitting documents for the Ambler Road project state that the road would have much higher traffic than the Red Dog Road. It also acknowledges that even low traffic levels have drastically changed caribou migration patterns. In Kotzebue, I'm Desiree Hagen. Earlier this month, the Bureau of Land Management published a draft SEIS for the project triggering a 60-day public comment period. Comments will be taken until December 19th. Young Alaska Native people from around the state learned how to fillet and prepare salmon in a series of workshops at the Elders and Youth Conference earlier this month in Anchorage. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra joined the pickling workshop and has this audio postcard. The first voice is 14-year-old Javon Stewart Foster. So first we cut off the head, and then we cut down the middle to fillet it. And once we fillet it, we sliced it into fourths, and we cut it into squares. I'm going to pickle it and jar it, and then take some home. Take it home, yeah. Who are you going to take it home for? 
Uh, my grandma. Jolie May Avakuma. I'm from Trough Black, Alaska. How old are you? 17. It was exciting when you were cutting up the fish into chunk bite sizes. This is my first time about to jar fish, like, out of my whole life. <laughs> I'm Ralph Wolf. I'm the director of indigenous stewardship programs at Clinkett and Haida. Our overall mission is to be able to show kids and even young adults who haven't had the opportunity to harvest or to put up salmon in different ways, whether it's just freezing them or pickling them or jarring them or smoking them. Some of the things are being lost right now in methods of preparation and harvesting because like some people can go out and catch salmon but they don't know what to do after that or they don't know how to catch salmon and they know how to do the rest of it and we showed kids how to you know the way we fillet fish in southeast and every region even in our region has different ways of cutting salmon so part of the the message we says this isn't the only way this is just how we do it in this part of the workshop the the folks are grabbing uh the salmon in jars and putting in lemon and onion and ginger and pickling spice and then the vinegar solution and, and so it can cure in about a week or so they'll be able to have you know some uh, pickled salmon. We got, we got like four cases left of jars of juice so if you want to do another one. My name is Hayden Grace Marie Blair. My grandmother um, and my aunties, they go fishing every summer, and then we either smoke them in our smokehouse or we can them. So have you cleaned and cut fish before? When I was younger, yes. I actually have a photo of me pretending to eat like a fish head, but not recently now, so it was nice learning how to cut one. That was an audio postcard from a salmon pickling workshop at the Elders and Youth Conference in Anchorage this month. Recorded by Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra. This is KTOO.